Welcome to Made in Science, the official podcast of the University of Stuttgart. My name is Wolfgang Holtkamp. I am Senior Advisor on International Affairs at the University and your host. Today, we welcome Professor Markus Bühler. He is McAfee Professor of Engineering at MIT and, of course, a former student from the University of Stuttgart. His work ranges from computational mechanics to bio-inspired design, manufacturing, and experimental analysis. Plus, he has also become an artist, but more about that later in our conversation. First of all, we are really so glad to have you with us today. Well, thank you, welcome for having me. For a start, let's talk about your work that you are doing right now. Your particular research interest lies in the mechanics of complex hierarchical materials. Please, could you tell us what that term really implies? Yeah, sure. And actually, it's something that I started to become interested in when I was a student here in Stuttgart. And I'll, maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, so what I'm interested in is to um, understand how materials work at the macro scales, what are the things you can see with your eyes, things we can touch and see with our hands and as humans, um, what these properties um, are based on the chemical structure. So I'm asking the question, if you think about a material and it's very deformable or very strong or very weak, where does it come from? If you look at the chemical interactions between the atoms, you can actually build models to predict ultimately how the, the macroscopic features of the material derive from the quantum mechanical chemical bonding and interactions. And there's Lots of different scales, we call them in between, right? There's the molecules, there's groups of molecules, there's fibers, and so on. Um, my research tries to predict um, how these different scales are relevant for the macroscopic properties. And that obviously has really strong implications for engineering, right? Because most engineering applications, uh, even though we do, we build things at the nanoscale, but most of the things we build are at the macro scale. So we can use them as humans. Our, our scale is not the scale of individual molecules. We usually deal with vehicles, batteries, buildings, paint, coatings, implants, biomedical applications, and so on. They're usually at the macro scale. And so my research tries to connect um, how we can make better products by engineering individual molecules and atoms. What particular methods do you use in your research to really uh, find out about these uh, well, molecules that form our world? Is there Any particular method uh, that you perhaps also rely on especially? Or is there a whole bunch of methods that comes up with every new idea that yes. you have? Well, good, good question. Um, <clears throat> so we, the main method we've been using for um, the last, I would say, decades now, it's pretty, pretty shocking, but I've been doing this for a couple of decades now, um, is what's called molecular simulations. Um, and, and that actually is, is a tool as I alluded to earlier, that actually started being exposed to when I was a student here at the University of Stuttgart in Professor Hass's lab um, institute at the time. Um, we can talk more about that later, but, but that is the tools. And what molecular modeling, molecular simulations, molecular dynamics, there's different terms for basically the same thing. Uh, what that does is essentially is to predict how individual atoms move in a material using computational simulations. I use lots of computers. Usually we use big computers, um, Because we have, if you think about materials, they have billions and billions, trillions of atoms. So to solve these equations requires significant computational power. Uh, but that's the main workers of simulation we use. So we're trying to watch the individual atoms do what they're doing according to the physical laws or quantum chemical laws, if we're going all the way to the nano and quantum scale. Um, and then we, we observe them. We use a lot of statistical methods to analyze what these, what these behaviors actually mean, because if you follow just the motion of atoms, um, you can't directly say what color a material has necessarily or how strong it is. You need to do some, something else. And we do a lot of technology or technique development in, in making these connections to actually predict from the motion of atoms what kind of properties materials actually have. That's the main method. Now, this was um, something we've used for a couple of decades, but now in the last several years, we've also gotten very heavily into machine learning, or I think in Germany it's called KI, Künstliche Intelligence, AI, which has changed the way we model things. So instead of following necessarily physical laws, we simply observe the behavior of systems, and AI methods can then derive engineering laws or solutions or predictions directly from observing data. And that's been a big 
transformation that I've been involved in since the last five years or so. So there's always something new happening. It's not happening for every problem, but um, there are definitely um, innovations happening. And the last biggest one in the computational material science world has been the AI revolution. And um, that brings sort of a new set of tools to the to the table. Um, one thing I want to also mention, if you because you, if you're looking at material behavior, engineering behavior um, from the atomistic scale, you can use the same method for pretty much any property you can imagine. Because any material, whether you use it, again, in automotive industry, <clears throat> as a battery or as an implant, um, everything consists of atoms and molecules. And so if you're beginning to describe your material at that scale, you're very flexible. And that also explains, if you look at my publications and my, my collaborations and my funding and my application areas in general, you're going to see that I work in lots of different industries, lots of different application areas, because the method is very flexible. Um, the other thing that makes it pretty um, wide-ranging in the application space is the fact we look at mechanical properties, especially failure. So we are, we're interested in seeing how materials perform under extreme mechanical deformations. And pretty much anything we have in this room even from the cell phone screen to my sunglasses, um, the, it's going to have to have some mechanical integrity. Otherwise, the material will just simply fall apart. Um, our computer chips is the same thing. They're amazing devices, amazing small nanotechnologies, but they have to be mechanically stable. So if your computer heats up, there's stresses that develop. Um, so you want to make sure that your integrated circuits, your microphones um, have mechanics ability. So mechanics and failure is something that's really very widely seen. And um, I have lots of collaborations in academia and with industry where we, we study precisely these, these aspects. And so sort of combining atomistic simulation, very foundational with an area that's very important for lots of different application areas, um, mechanical properties, um, I found a really exciting area that has lots of touch points. And I, I like to work on different areas because I'm interested in seeing the, um, the analogies and synergies between different areas of application. The different areas remind me of an interdisciplinary approach that your research is very, very much uh, influenced by. Um, how did that evolve? Um, did you see that coming uh, early enough or really early in your research work? Um, or in your career, for that matter? Uh, or is this something that has taken momentum uh, over the last, what, I don't know, years only? Yeah, so we have always been interested in, in lots of different, um, I would say, areas. And I, I remember actually when I came as a student here to Stuttgart, I, I studied Verfahrenstechnik, chemical engineering, and I, I loved math, I loved um, chemistry, and that was sort of the combination for me. And of course, over, the, over time it evolved, but I've always had um, an interest in sort of basic science, mathematics, foundational principles, but also in, in application areas. And if you work in this space, engineering is sort of a perfect area, arena, kind of for you to work in. And... Um, I think the the fact that we have the I would say that the challenges we have today in in addressing technological innovation, uh, you need to work in multiple disciplines because yeah if you want to build a better battery you're going to have to know about chemistry you also have to know about the vehicle you're going to put it in and you have to know a lot of times as engineers today about social implications and ethical implications right you know do you want to build that device is it ethical. Um, what are the implications for policy, or do you need new policies? And so I think for, for engineers, we have all become much more interdisciplinary, I would say, but I've always had this great interest, and in fact, that's one of the things that, that drew me to chemical engineering in the first place, but also drew me ultimately to MIT, because at MIT we have sort of this philosophy where we, we, we like to have no or few boundaries between disciplines. Right? So I have appointments in mechanical engineering and civil environmental engineering, and I can have I have students actually from many different departments and, and programs. Well, chemistry, I've had students from biology, biological engineering, um, material science. I've had students from many different disciplines, including, as you mentioned earlier, in the arts. I work with people from the humanities as well, scholars in that field. So MIT has been a, um, an amazing place, sort of, to um, to foster this interest. And and I think, yeah, as as you alluded to, I think in the last couple of years we've seen a real need actually for engineers to be educated across not just in our own technical disciplines very deep, we need that of course, but to also learn a much broader perspective. Right? If an engineer goes out today in industry or in policy or in universities, 
um, they're going to have to have a much broader perspective as, say, 20, 30 years ago, where they were basically just doing technical work. Now it's not enough. Right? Communication is another topic that I, I, I also, especially in my administrative work at MIT, I've seen lots of, I've worked with communications teams, and it's important to you, how do you communicate a te- technological innovation to well, donors, sponsors, investors, but also to the public? If you want to create a new technology where if the population is afraid of that new technology, you're going to have a problem creating this product or marketing the product. So I think we all have become much more aware of these multiple disciplines. And the and I think scientists, yeah, just have to work together with other scientists and engineers to solve problems. It's no longer enough to be an individual scientist sitting at a desk for years and then solving a problem, you need to work and have insights from lots of different areas. I would like to elaborate on that a little more. I wonder if students who come to MIT uh, actually come to this university because they know there is this broad approach in particular favored. Uh, So the question would rather be, what do new materials and mathematics and structures of music and language really have in common? And how do you employ the insights from these very diverse areas yeah. um, into your research? Can you give us an example on yeah, that? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to give examples. So, so in terms of students coming to MIT, they I think they clearly value the, the multidisciplinary environment. And we have, just as an illust- illustration or an example, that gives sort of a good idea. All the students at MIT, and I think also in Stuttgart, Even when I was here, I had to take humanities classes, but we at MIT have a very strict requirement. You have to take all the engineering and science requirements, but you also have to take humanities classes, language or culture or music or things like this. And the students that we get at MIT are usually interested in multiple dimensions, and they they know that we value this because we have requirements for them, um, but they also live that in all the things they do. I think we have that that culture at MIT, and and it's something that when you walk in and you meet the students, you can tell they're not only interested in you know, in an island of knowledge, but they usually are interested much broader. And, and when we work with undergrad students in particular, or grad students, or postdocs, or faculty, um, you're going to see that all across the board. And that's really fun, right? Because you have lots of people have intersections in areas you might, might not expect. Um, so in my own work, we so we came to this, um, so I'm, I'm basically, I call myself a material scientist. That's what I became ultimately at Max Planck when I did my PhD here in Stuttgart. Um, and, and so in material science, you have this, the sort of the central dogma, if you wish, is basically you have a connection between structure um, and you want to think maybe about a process to make that structure in an experiment or in a factory and then a property that arises from that. And so that is something that we typically we write it out as maybe a, what you call a recipe. You know, how do you make steel A or B or C? How do you make that polymer? You kind of have different chemical processes and conditions and then you get a structure. And that is kind of similar, um, it's a process where you, you can imagine it's like a little booklet that you write to describe how to make that material. And then you can, if you're a material scientist in theory, you study how that property that you might create actually where it comes, where it comes from. So you might learn from that that it, it comes from particular grain sizes or a particular type of polymer chains or cross-links. And those of you in the technical areas, you know, you, you'll, you'll be familiar with those terms. So it's examples for what the design at the nanoscale, the mesoscale looks like. Um, and then you, you, you understand perhaps that certain relationships are because of physical laws, like scaling laws, fundamental laws that give rise to certain properties. And that's what engineers then use to optimized materials. So that's sort of a, it's like a story you tell. And, and that's something that we, we actually started capturing these stories in quotation marks um, using mathematical concepts called category theory. So it's a categorization where you basically begin to say, you, you systematically write down these recipes of how structure, function, and processes relate to one another. And we then also had a longstanding interest in my own work in my lab at MIT in other areas. And so you're going to see that, of course, if you think about, for example, music is an area I've worked on a lot, or uh, the language of music, you have similar types of laws and rules that create certain types of functions. And in, in music theory, that's an area that's where that is studied, actually, how certain types of um, sounds and instruments and, and um, scalings um, and rules to form certain types of melodies and chord progressions come about. So you can begin to see the analogies. And music is a very mathematical concept as well, if you, if you wish. Um, of course, there's an input there in, in human creativity. 
Um, but ultimately, you can also apply a theoretical framework. And you can begin to see in all of these, you have building blocks, we call them ultimately. So in, in materials, it might be an atom or a molecule or a protein or an amino acid, which is, makes up proteins, depending on what perspective you take. Right? So you can look at this from different perspectives. But let's say you take a look at atoms and molecules. That those are your building blocks, like Legos. And you can build really interesting things from that, with very interesting properties. And in music, you can see the, the analogy would be where you have a note, for example, one instrument, two, three. And, and as we look at a musical score, you can understand how function in this case is an audible experience for a listener emerges by using these building blocks. The Legos in this case are notes and instruments, and you can put them together and forming um, lots of different expressions. And if you use mathematics of category theory, you can begin to analyze them systematically. And you can begin to say, okay, here I have a, a category of a material A, and here I have a category of a musical piece. And you can begin to see what are the similarities and differences between them. And we have sort of done this for many years. In fact, I think we started doing this more than 10, 15 years ago or so. Um, and in the last several years, we've made lots of advances using machine learning. Because one of the things you see in this area is that it's a very high level of complexity. Many, many, many problems, however, are much more complex than um, problems we can treat analytically. And so that's where computational methods become very, very powerful. And so what we've done in a nutshell, essentially, is to analyze how we can translate materials into, for example, music or audible form. And also how we can use existing music and translate them back into, into materials. And so that sort of two-way translation has been quite, quite interesting and, again, enabled by um, advanced computational methods in machine learning, especially uh, techniques called language models. So these are models that basically deal with language. And so descriptions of how things work, and mostly language models are applied maybe in your, in your iPhone or in your cell phone because you can communicate with your cell phone and it will answer you or maybe... Computers can write stories for you or they can draw pictures for you, but we have translated or applied developed methods um, within the same scope of, of, of course, sort of technological level, but um, now applied for materials and especially at the interface between materials and languages that describe materials on the one hand and also music on the other side. Those of us who want to meet the scientist, Markus, um, will find that uh, you have uh, a very, very high uh, citation rate uh, already. Uh, those of us who want to find the artist, uh, Marcus, uh, will have to go, for instance, to the Guggenheim Museum or to the Palais de Tokyo in Paris. You talked a little bit about the connection between uh, science and uh, and the arts and how those areas actually are not strangers uh, to each other, uh, but uh, that perhaps it is often up to us to understand uh, the links uh, between these. Uh, what is it that uh, was, in, was exhibited or is still being exhibited uh, at uh, the institutions I mentioned or perhaps uh, somewhere else uh, yeah. that I don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, so I've had the these collaborations have really been, of, been created at MIT in, in a group called um, CAST, which is, stands for Center for Art, Science and Technologies. MIT has a, a center or an institute, if you wish, um, that fosters exactly what you describe, um, relationships between art and science. And it's a very flexible setup. You know, we have artists coming to MIT. We have MIT faculty working with artists. We have MIT faculty... Um, creating art together with visiting artists, and so a lot of the things I've, you've talked about, um, you know, some of the things were created in that in that setting. So all of these things have been created through cast, essentially, and catalyzed through that. Um, yeah. So at Guggenheim, that's during the pandemic, so it was a, a virtual it ended up being a virtual exhibition. So I don't know. I think it's probably still on the website because it it was a virtual creation because at the time everything was shut down, and so I worked with the visiting artists. Um, we created. Um, um, so I talked earlier about a little bit about analogy between sound and material. Um, one of the ways by which we can create this analogy mathematically and physically rigorous actually is by looking at the vibrations of molecules. And so that's sort of a, I didn't get into that detail earlier, but it's not just a description. It actually has a physical basis in that every molecule, if you look at it, even if you were to look at it using a very powerful microscope at very high time resolution, you would see it actually isn't just a static picture. If you imagine your chemistry textbook, right, you open it and there's a picture of a molecule in there. And I always say that's a wrong picture because molecules aren't actually static. Like this chair is 
the same chair now and in five minutes probably it's going to have the same shape unless the sun melts it because it's so hot but but usually in um in in you know in a room temperature the shape of things won't change but molecules are very different you know they actually are continuously vibrating and changing so it's like a guitar string except nobody's actually plucking the string it's just by by the the kinetic energy of what we call temperature it's enough to deform the molecular bonding structure significantly and so those are um features that are well understood at the quantum level molecular level and so that is a feature that we can actually study and ultimately make audible to the human ear. And so what we've done in that particular work, I, we created these models of how molecules sound like. Um, and then we, we wanted to make it visible again. So in other words, you can listen to it. But sound waves, of course, also have a physical quality to them that they can actually um, deform, well, air, of course, but if you play sound waves loud enough, if you wish, um, you can also deform other surfaces like water, for example. And so in this more artistic work, we um, sort of tried this experiment. So it's a, it's a science art experiment. So it doesn't really follow the scientific method fully, but it also is also, of course, art that is not just creative. It's also art that's informed by science. Um, we created these um, vibrational patterns of molecules using scientific methods. And then we, we played them on a, on a water surface and we create water waves, essentially. So the water waves are usually created by wind or earthquakes, maybe. Um, but in this case, we created them using sound waves. And so depending on what kind of molecule makes the sound originally that we then play to the water waves, we're going to create different wave patterns. And the question we explored is, can an AI algorithm determine what molecule caused these wave patterns? Because, of course, for the human eye, it's likely it's too complicated. We can't really distinguish these fine details, but an AI algorithm can actually pick that up. And so then we, so we, we created these wave patterns. So we basically had, so again, the connection is the nanoscale vibrations, make them audible, play the, play the sound vibrations um, to waves, as waves to a, a water surface, which then again creates water waves. So we, so we could see how these um, different molecules create different water waves. The algorithm then has learned to distinguish them. Now, that is sort of a skill, again, that's hard for humans to do, but an AI algorithm can do that quite well, actually. So then we did this, uh, this trick where we said, um, what, if you, what, can we, what can the AI algorithm teach us? And so we basically gave the AI algorithm um, other types of wave structures, um, maybe waves at the ocean. And Michael Abbott actually took a video of um, waves in the, um, at, 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 at a beach in Norway. <laughs> um, and then we... We asked the algorithm, what kind of molecular vibration equivalents do you see in these other water waves, which are not created by molecules, obviously, they're created by wind and, I guess, well, other, other forces in nature. And um, then we can draw these patterns on top of these other objects. We also gave it pictures of rocks or trees and things like this, and basically asked the algorithm, what kind of molecular features do you see in these other things? And are there analogies and similarities? Now, this is sort of us the scope, and to show the connectedness really across, um, you know, different manifestations. Again, um, you have invisible things at the quantum level you can't see, we can make them audible, but then you can ask, where else are they found? And this is this question that I'm exploring a lot of times in the research is, the universality of relationships, and that's very powerful for engineering, actually. So you know, you ask the question, it starts out, but the in this perspective actually is very important. If you are an engineer and you want to solve problems, you if you look for the solutions always in the same space, you're going to run out of ideas at some point, and and so this allows you to say, well, if I have a solution to a problem in maybe in a discipline A or B, I can maybe apply this knowledge in another discipline, and that's what interdisciplinary research allows us to do and the art science collaboration in this in this in this space um, formalizes that and in in one way of course it creates scholarship in the arts you know creates things we can exhibit we can tell stories around it I mean in the in the piece we ultimately created we had a whole story around this theme explained to a general audience the the connectedness of waves and wave patterns from the nano exactly to the macro level Um, and we can also um, use this knowledge to train students Markus, from what we have heard from you already, and certainly from what I have seen um, at MIT and beyond, um, you are somebody who inspires people. Not in the old-fashioned top-down way, but in the motivating way of somebody who believes in the potential of everyone. 
The example that I have in mind is certainly、uh, a hackathon at MIT some years ago that、uh, I remember on the morning of the day very early. You sent me an email saying, "Wolfgang, you have to come,"、uh, and、uh, that was my first hackathon ever, really,、uh, to attend. And it was for me very fascinating to see that everybody speaking, professor or postdoc or doctoral student or master student, would have five minutes for the presentation. Period, and they all. Including yourself,、uh, found that what they wanted to say, they could do it in five minutes, and it was all good. So you managed on that day to inspire people to get connected, to find out who else at MIT、uh, is working along these lines, or would see connections that you have just talked about. So you got people started, and I wonder, what did it take? To get Markus Bühler started, when was the click moment, or perhaps a series of moments、uh, that you recall、uh, in hindsight, saying, "Yeah, without those turns,、uh, I wouldn't be sitting here in this podcast today." Well, the, I think it all started when I when I started taking classes here. Vorlesungen hier in Stuttgart. And I remember especially mathematics、uh, lectures,、um, and, and of course all the engineering disciplines too. But <clears throat> particularly mathematics,、um, which was,、um, you know, for me really a moment where, for the first time, felt and also meeting my my peers, my kommilitonen, I think you know, call them,、um, where I felt like、um, I found a place where a lot of people that think like me and have interests like me.、Uh, so one of the special things that I saw, in addition to meeting like-minded people here and and being able to Participate in, in in classes and lectures here, forelesson that were, were really interesting and really drew me in.、Um, I could dive really deep into the topic, which I'd never had a chance to do in 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 in, high, in gymnasium. I never really、um, had the opportunity to go that deep, and so that was sort of a moment that also was complemented by things I could do as a hivi at the time. These are assistants. I was a hivi and at Fraunhofer, I think, in the beginning, and then I did some、um, hivi work also for the mechanics institute with Lothar Gaul at the time. And then later on, I became a, a teaching assistant for Wolfgang Wendland mathematics, which was really exciting for me, as I was one of the very few engineering students actually who were TAing in the higher mathematics、um, lectures with him. And, and I learned a lot, of course, being exposed to really high-level research and being exposed to teaching, teaching students, and as a TA, as a teaching assistant. Um, and that was sort of the moment then where things really started to open up for me,、um, and I then became obviously became interested in, in going abroad to Michigan, spent some time at Michigan Tech, and right before I went to Michigan Tech, which which I mentioned earlier, I was a, a course I took、um, by Rajan Rapic, who is now I think he's in Kaiserslautern, maybe he has moved, but he was a、um, I think a senior doctoral student or a Wissenschaftler in 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 Professor Hasse's. Thermodynamics Institute here in Feyingen, and he offered a special lecture called、uh, "Atomistic Simulation" or something to that effect, or statistical mechanics of chemistry or chemical engineering. So it was all this was in chemical engineering for fans techniques. It was had to do with、uh, phase diagrams and things like this. And so anyway, so Yadran Rapic taught this course, and he taught in that course about atomistic simulation. So how do you predict? Phase diagrams, not by making a measurement, but actually using a computer simulation. And I and I, I love that, and that sort of opened up. That really was the trigger for me, and I still do the same thing today. As you asked earlier, what's your main method? Atomistic simulation. That's sort of what I've been exposed to for the first time here, and that's something that I I took yeah as an elective class. Not was not required. It was something that I took right before I went to Michigan, and I absolutely loved it. I actually didn't use this in Michigan at all. I did research in Michigan on what's called smart materials. Amazing, and I I did actually go to conferences, wrote papers for the first time, and all these things. But when I came back to Stuttgart for my PhD、um, at Max Planck, I began to use the statistic simulation again, and I was lucky actually. And this is sometimes the you know was it the heavens aligned in some ways that I I came back here and I had this、um, offer to go to Max Planck because a new professor had joined from Stanford, Hua Jiangao was my advisor, who became my advisor, and he. Yeah, he just moved from Stanford. Was building his lab here, his group at Max Planck, and he started doing atomistic simulation of fractor material, mechanical behavior. He was a mechanical engineer, material scientist, mechanical engineer, which I am now too. 
Um, and, you know, so he was interested in, in having students working on this. I met, met him, I met some folks at his lab, and I told them about the course I took, and sort of one thing happened after another, and I started doing my PhD then there, and it was, it was um, yeah, extremely exciting, because I could actually combine the mechanical engineering um, things I had learned, especially in Michigan, I worked on solid mechanics, that's a um, Festkörper mechanic, I think, in, in German. Um, I combined that with the atomistic simulation materials I had learned in Yadran's course and also in, of course, Professor Hasse's lectures in thermodynamics and chemistry. So things sort of came together in this journey. And um, and then on, I, of course, it went on to other places and things. But that was the, the moment. And it was sort of the, the intellectual community here at Stuttgart, which was something I had just never experienced in my life. It was eye-opening and mind-opening, you can say. Um, and then, and then having opportunities to be exposed to, you know, high-level research and teaching, which which I was very thankful for. I'd never been given opportunities like this before. After Stuttgart, you went back to the United States, and you have taught uh, at various uh, universities, both West Coast and also East Coast. Uh, from that experience. How did that uh, reflect on you? Um, I would expect there could have been very different research cultures, perhaps, yeah. uh, at the various institutions. Uh, that uh, and and I m might conclude that you draw, uh, you know, your lessons and came to your uh, own convictions how to proceed. Yeah. Sum up everything that you kind of uh, experienced at the various um, uh, learning. Uh, spaces uh, at, in higher education that yes. you had a chance to be in. What would you? What did you take from that? And uh, and how? And what is still in that? I guess uh, at MIT, as you live it and love it and yes. uh, uh, present it. Yeah, so great. Yeah, no, I've I've had the chance to move around a lot of different places, and I always would encourage all the younger aspiring people, whether they, whether they go, whether they go to academia or industry or anywhere. It's good to move around and then see different cultures of how things are done. And in fact, that's one of the things we do also at MIT. One of my roles is as faculty director for MIT Germany, MISTI, and we have a program with Stuttgart as well. Um, and that's one of the convictions that I have, actually, is to, to give young people the opportunity to go abroad from MIT to come to Stuttgart and experience what things are like here. But um, so what if I take away from different places? So in, um, I'd say, you know, after my PhD, I went to Caltech and... I actually went there with a very strategic kind of mindset. I, I, I had, um, you know, the experience in, in chemical engineering, I had the experience in mechanical engineering, I had my PhD in material science, which was actually formerly in chemistry. All the PhDs at Max Planck in, with my professor was given chemistry. Um, and and I, I wanted to know more about the quantum level. So we talked earlier about the quantum vibrations of molecules and I, I wanted to work with um, a professor that had a lot of very deep experience in that field, and so I ended up working with Bill Goddard, who's still actually active at Caltech. And um, his lab, he's a famous person in, in quantum molecular simulation. And he, what I talked about earlier, the scale bridging in the very beginning, you asked what I do. Um, he's been doing this and pioneering this since the 1970s and 80s. So he has a long history there. So I wanted to work. Basically, I thought, why don't I try to work with somebody who's the best in the world in this inspector field? And so I ended up being very lucky, actually, having a chance to have a position in his lab. Um, so work with Bill. Um, and then, of course, because I had published some really, in hindsight, looking back, I had some published some important papers. I didn't know at the time. At the time, I thought, of course, when you're applying for jobs and you're looking around as a postdoc, you... Um, you know, you're struggling. But I, I had published some papers that had quite a bit of an influence. And, and so there was a lot of people paying attention to me. And one of the places that actually looked at my me as a potentially hire was MIT. And so very quickly after I moved back to the U.S., um, worked at Caltech, I had lots of universities contacting me, you know, why don't you come and give a talk? You know, we have a position. And MIT was quite persistent, actually. They invited me and they said, hey, you should apply for this job, and, and you know, they, they were really interested in recruiting me, so they ended up recruiting me. Um, and so we moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, and, um, and then, um, you know, started working at MIT. Now, Caltech is a very small university, you know, a couple hundred faculty, thousands of students. MIT has 10,000 students. That's sort of a, almost a magnitude smaller than MIT. Um, and Caltech had a very, though, very collaborative 
culture. You know, we had at Caltech there there are divisions and departments, faculties, but there really are only names because people work across disciplines very strongly. They have to. You know, if you imagine being a university like Caltech and you want to be in the in the world's best ranking and, and, and problem solving, you're going to have to take all the faculty you, you can and make them, like you said earlier, make them effective, make them work together, solve problems, um, seeing the potential and how you can put different people together in a, in a team to, to solve problems. I was lucky to be part of a larger team, actually. It's, it was called DARPA PROM, which dealt with predicting material properties, uh, in, in fact. And, and so there was a team that had mathematicians on there, chemists, material scientists, mechanical engineers, and so on. Um, and, and showed me that. Now, when I moved to MIT, um, MIT is a much bigger university. You know, we have lots of people in the same field in multiple copies, if you wish. Not exact copies, but we have similar um, faculty. And, and, and maybe unlike um, the German systems, the U.S. system is very much based on individual faculty. So it's, there's no institutes. There's departments, which are like, I think like faculty faculty. So they have like 30 or 40 faculty in them. Um, but each faculty is their own little enterprise. We all have to raise our own funds. We all decide what to do, pretty much. Um, in research and teaching, there's some top-down kind of telling you what to do, but in, but in research. Um, but yeah, so in, at MIT, we had lots of faculty doing similar things. There was a little bit more division, but, um, but a lot more opportunities, of course, than at Caltech, so I like that. Um, and then we had lots more students. You know, I remember when I went to MIT and I had the chance to work with undergraduate students there um, that are extremely bright, extremely interested, diversely interested, like you were asking earlier too. Um, and you know, and then I had built my lab there essentially, and it, starting from just myself. I was the only one in the lab. I had one or two PhD students, and then I had a couple of undergrads, and then I had now I have about fifteen uh, total. I had maybe more close to twenty at some point, but. Usually, there's a there's a limit on how much time you can spend. So in in the U.S., the individual labs are are very there's a very close collaboration interaction between the faculty, myself in this case, and students. So there's not a desire to have kind of hierarchy of different people that basically the students never meet the PI. The expectation is at MIT that you as a PI will have the time to work and meet with everyone and and actually interact with the students. And so there's a time limit, of course, if you want to do that well. Um, so about 15 students or so something I found to be optimal for me. And for those whom you cannot meet or who cannot meet you, they can find you um, because you also offer TED Talks. Uh, what are some of the topics uh, of these talks that you offer and uh, which ones did you like best? Yeah, so, yeah so I've given a couple of these um, TED Talks and also other you know, general audience talks and One of them was actually during the pandemic, as we talked earlier about the art science connection I worked on, we've translated lots of different materials into music, but during the pandemic we created a translation of the COVID pathogen into music, and that created uh, lots of interest, of course, in the public domain. So one of the talks was uh, titled, If a Virus Could Sing, and basically we talked about how you can listen to this COVID pathogen, and and, and that was actually, uh, had a a big impact around the world. So I've given lots of interviews, and and one of the things I I love to do is outreach, and so it was a great opportunity for me to talk to a general audience, say in a TV station or audio, I've given interviews around the world, um, and tell them, yeah, about music, which is accessible to everyone, that's a universal language, but also tell them a little bit about what we talked about earlier, about vibrations and Mechanics and and how proteins look like and how they work and so that's something that I like to do. Um, you know, some other talks I've given a general audience is something about career advice sometimes and, and just like you said earlier too. And, and thank thank you for picking that up. I, I I'm very interested in you know inspiring young people or not just young anyone but especially young people. You know that are questioning what they're going to do with their lives and. And, you know, showing them um, pathways, and I, I give lots of talks also in high schools, and I have, a, I have a high school program, actually, a middle and high school program in my lab at MIT, where I invite, um, this year we had 40 or 50 students from local middle school, which is, I think, 7th to high school, 12th grade. Um, they spend time in my lab at MIT with teachers, um, and they try to do research, saying try, they, it's the first time they, they do that kind of thing, open-ended questions, but they, some of them are doing really well. Um, so I do that a lot, and, and of course, I also do, we have programs at MIT for very talented high school students internationally recruit. One of them is called the Research Scholars um, Institute, and they, they basically have an international recruiting process where they select the best of the best from around the world, not just from the Boston area, like we do in my own lab, but 
and so I've had students from that program and some of them have written papers with me. Like last year I had a student um, and he wrote a scientific paper on machine learning and proteins actually, which was just published and is having a big impact. And so, so I, I like to do things like that and, you know, it goes from TED Talks to hosting high school students and middle school students in a lab and working with teachers. And I think there's a, um, and, and it wasn't one of the reasons why I do that is because I feel like when I was a student here and we talked earlier about what when did it click for you? It was the moment when I was given the opportunity to do things like that. And for me, it happened only after I got to Stuttgart, basically. But I would love to have had the chance to do that earlier, but I didn't. But regardless, when it happens, but it's it's always great to have. A, you need you need a um, someone who's your champion, and somebody who believes in you, and somebody who gives you the opportunity. Like I had the chance to work with Huajian Gao as a PhD advisor at Max Planck. And um, later on with Bill Goddard and, and so on. And, and those are, you know, special moments where they, they somehow gave, gave you the chance, right? And, and I want to give back to, to other people in that sense. The particular MIT Germany program, um, the MISTI that we talked about earlier, uh, works along the same line in a way, right? It is for uh, one column, it's uh, for the researchers, uh, of course, but there uh, uh, is also the column where university students, MIT students, come to Stuttgart and actually teach in English language uh, in the uh, hard sciences subjects here uh, in the in our uh, gymnasium uh, and vice versa. We also bring uh, students from the University of Stuttgart to MIT to so they get to know uh, uh, the university there, but also uh, they will uh, have a chance to teach uh, in Boston. Uh, and so that will be a new experience uh, uh, for them as well. Uh, these are teacher training students already, but uh, to open up the mind and uh, to see the other uh, is, of course, uh, the essential aspect. And we are glad that companies and foundations uh, actually uh, support this uh, particular uh, effort uh, that you just uh, expressed uh, so well. Do you think, Marcus, that not only for young people, uh, science um, is at a particular uh, crucial moment uh, in time now with challenges like climate change, with uh, digitalization and consequences uh, that we see the changes in our lives, in our daily lives so much with the addressing questions of energy and uh, how to proceed in that area uh, in the future. Um, do you think there are or these are particular uh, days for science? Yes, um, I think science has become obviously it's always important for the advancement of society, but they, there's a critical moment, of course, right now to solve really pressing problems, as you outlined. Um, you know, one area I think we, we as scientists have to be better is explaining to the public better what we do and how we do things. And also, um, you know, make sure that the public understands. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in outreach and STEM and, you know, give tech talks and as you asked earlier. But and that is really because I feel we have a responsibility as scientists. You know, we're mostly funded, at least in my, in my work at MIT, we're funded by public funding, um, foundations to some extent, also industry, but a lot of the funding comes from um, the government agencies like National Science Foundation, Department of Defense, and National Institutes of Health, and so on. And, you know, I feel we have a responsibility for the public to understand what we do and how we do it, and also... Um, something I'm very passionate about, not to talk down to the public and basically tell the public, okay, here's the result, you've got to believe it. You know, we have to explain the process and we also have to explain where the uncertainties are. And that's something that I feel we, we can do better, to be honest, because as scientists, all of us, um, because um, the, you know, the general population is very smart. You know, we, 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 we sometimes think as experts in quotation marks that we, we just have to tell the public the answer and say that's how we're going to do it. But we have to do better than that. You know, I think we have to explain um, the models and the predictions and the measurements in a lot more detail. And I think the debate that's going on right now around lots of different topics, climate and COVID and, and public health and, and so on, um, require, um, I, I think, a high degree of honesty because there's a danger that the public will not believe scientists anymore if they don't believe that we're telling the whole story, meaning that if we are cherry-picking the results we want the public to hear, 
but not telling the other ones, then I think there's a danger there. So that's an, an area that I feel quite strongly about, and I think that um, scientists should be doing lots of outreach and public talks because that's a way for the public to create trust in the scientists and vice versa. I think that's an important area. Um, but uh, but yeah, science is uh, clearly at a, at a point where this is important. But I can also see that a lot of um, there's a lot of doubt in the population about about the science about science. I mean, I hear I, I do not know exactly the discussions in in, the, in Europe and Germany, but in the United States, of course, around COVID. Um, there's been a lot of debate, you know, starting from COVID itself to vaccinations and and everything, and and I do believe we have to um, um, be you know be prepared as scientists to to engage much more with the public than we have in the past. And how's the cooperation with companies going? Um, you uh, talked about manufacturing uh, earlier yes. uh, and how important it is. You, you also have uh, a number of uh, patents out. And uh, so uh, how has that changed at all? Or again, in these times and yes. days, uh, is this uh, a new moment uh, as well uh, that you that you see uh, that uh, the, the relations are really need to be more fostered or uh, or need to be strengthened or are they stronger than ever i'm curious to hear about that yeah so so it's a great another great great question i think for you know for my own in my own work i i try to pick problems that require a really really exciting scientific foundation right and that's what i'm passionate about in you know, doing science and and advancing knowledge but i also am very passionate about applying it to real problems and for me industry collaborations are exactly the space to do that and i do this in in a lot of different ways. I do this as a consultant and my own with industry. I do it um, at MIT, of course, with funded projects. Um, and, and those have, I think, you know, my own lab have grown a lot in the last several years um, because I think industry is becoming kind of like the public. They, they want to know and they want to squeeze out more performance at lower cost or at lower environmental footprint. And they realize that if they just continue tweaking existing technologies, it's not enough. And so they really need to think a uh, little bit deeper, and a lot of industries have, even big ones have, of course, they have lots of expertise in-house, but when you want to go across different disciplines, it's hard to build a, an entirely new group in a new area that you don't fully understand or appreciate or have a lot of background in. Um, so they come to universities a lot of times to create this multidisciplinary perspective, um, because we have very easily can collaborate across, well, engineering disciplines, science disciplines, even humanities and social impacts. And um, they come to us for that, and we've seen an increase, actually, in that. And so in my own lab, in my own, or at MIT broadly, we have seen a significant increase, industry funding, foundation funding, less government funding. And, um, you know, generally, we're very lucky at a place like MIT. We were attracting lots of interest, of course. Um, and as I know Stuttgart does as well, you have amazing industry close by. One is, by the way, one of the reasons why we, we are so keen on having Stuttgart as a partner for MISTI, because... The, the kinds of industry connections you have, and I also benefited from that as a student, especially at Fraunhofer Institute, who were absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Um, but yeah, so we've seen this increase generally in, in creating and having industry becoming interested in, in, in finding knowledge and expertise in areas they don't have. And also, they want to know what is going on in the cutting edge. So if you're, you know, I mentioned earlier AI, machine learning, KI, um, that's an area that we've gotten into about five, six years ago. And for us, it was a slow transition into that. Um, in the meantime, there's been a revolution. You know, everyone's talking about it right now. A lot of industries are being transformed, reformed based on this. And if, again, that's an area where we have acute interest a lot of times because a lot of legacy, big um, industrial, um, small and big companies, um, big brands, small brands, niche brands, they, uh, they want to know what is this all about? Uh, what are the risks? And... Here's another example of hype. You know, you have the news, if you open the newspaper every day, you have an article about how amazing AI is and how it's going to revolutionize everything from providing solutions to climate, to batteries, to driving cars. It's, it's, there's a more, that's a much more subtle discussion that we need to have around it. So the, the press, you know, um, of course, wants headlines and clicks, I guess, um, on our phones. But, um, but yeah, so for industry, this is a big issue that they want to know really what are the positives, the negatives, the concerns, what are the implications um, beyond the hype. And, and you know, a place like MIT, we, um, we go very deep in, in the topic. And, and um, so we've seen a great interest in industry collaborations, be I think, because of that. Markus, 
coming to the final part of our conversation here today, uh, which uh, I've enjoyed so much already. Um, now, we have uh, moment seven, which basically means we will ask seven questions and uh, we would like you to answer as shortly as possible. Moment one. Spätzle or Maultaschen? Both. Moment two. One thing you could change about the world. Better communication. Moment three. Markus, do you have a book recommendation for us? Well, not a book recommendation, perhaps, um, but maybe a music recommendation. You could all listen to some of the virus music we've created uh, with the Lindenbaum Orchestra in Korea that um, actually has created an audible um, representation of the interaction between the spike protein in the COVID pathogen and the um, antibodies in the human body. And this music was created earlier this year to express the hope that maybe now we'll be finally moving on from the pandemic into a more normal environment. Moment four. The best advice that you have ever received was? To ask questions. Moment five. Your favorite place on campus at the University of Stuttgart? It was the cafeteria in um, Feigen. I don't actually, I don't know exactly the, the name. Maybe it doesn't have a name, but it was the place where we would go between lectures and sometimes do assignments and prepare for the next course. And I remember eating the, drinking coffee and drink, eating the baguettes they had. I don't know if they still have them, but that was my that was a that was a favorite time actually because we would sit there with a group of of students and and discuss and um that's one of my favorite memories and in the summer we would sit outside of course but in the winter we would be inside moment six. if i could start all over again i would do the following differently well i would probably um well ask more questions that's what i said earlier that's something i would start earlier <clears throat> and um I, I believe that there's a, the journey is the journey, and you can't really recreate the journey because then it would be a different journey. But, but I think I would probably um, uh, tell myself to have more courage in, in trying things I wouldn't try. So for me, you know, when I came to Stuttgart, I, I was for the first time trying lots of different things and exploring the university and knowledge in different fields. And I haven't really had the courage to do that until I came here. And I wish I would have had the opportunity and courage to do that earlier. And moment seven. Please complete the following sentence. Thanks to my studies, I know that... I know nothing. Well, Marcus, my impression is a very different one today. Uh, you know quite a bit. And we are so glad that you are so willing and so inspiring in sharing that with us and our audience here. So thank you very much for our conversation. It has been... A true pleasure meeting you here in Stuttgart again. To our podcast audience, please stay healthy, stay good, and most of all, stay tuned for our conversations that are always based on what is made in science. Mm -hmm.